Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Great to have you with us for another episode of Spy Talk. There is a lot of speculation and debate about the origin of COVID-19. Did it come from a lab? Did it originate in bats? It turns out there's a unit within the Defense Intelligence Agency that is completely devoted to medical intelligence, looking for emerging diseases, analyzing the kind of impact they might have. We spoke to a former member of the team at the National Center for Medical Intelligence for his thoughts on where COVID came from. I think you can take almost all of this idea that it was some kind of a nefarious action off the table. there would be, uh, it would probably rank in terms of, you know, monumental stupidity as high as you could get to release an organism that you had no measures against, countermeasures against that was highly infectious and, uh, and highly, highly dangerous, highly lethal. Um, you know, that would just be, you know, beyond folly. We will learn more about the medical sleuths at NCMI, what they look for and where and why later in the podcast. Meanwhile, the House Select Committee looking into the January 6th mob assault on the Capitol heard harrowing testimony this week from Capitol Police officers who repeatedly referred to the pro-Trump rioters as terrorists and insurrectionists. One of the officers testified that, quote, We did not receive any threat warnings from our chain of command, unquote. Why the FBI, of all organizations, did not tip off the Capitol Police that a violent attempt to block the certification of Joe Biden as president was in the offing remains a mystery. So I reached out to former FBI Special Agent Mike German, whom the Bureau tasked in the 1990s to infiltrate and disrupt violent plots by pro-Nazi and white supremacist groups. He offered some disquieting views on the FBI's current approach to white extremist groups. Mike German, welcome to the Spy Talk podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Now, you infiltrated white supremacists as an undercover FBI agent many years ago. We have some recent reports now, particularly from BuzzFeed, saying that the FBI thoroughly penetrated the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and perhaps they penetrated it a little bit too far and may have guided that plot. Now, first of all, let me just ask you about your own experience. When you were infiltrating the white supremacists, um, Aryan Nation and so forth many years ago, did your superiors ever urge you to go a little bit farther and to uh, promote a plot by these groups? No, uh, uh, quite the opposite. Uh, I mean, there was significant concern, uh, number one, that we had sufficient criminal predicates, right? That the guidelines that were instituted after the church committee investigation showed significant abuse of the FBI's domestic uh, terrorism and national security authorities. Uh, 
uh, required that, that FBI agents have a reasonable indication of criminal activity. So we had to continually make sure that we had for each subject of the investigation, articulable facts showing that they were engaging in criminal activity as opposed to just saying things I didn't like. I, I was undercover with Nazis. <laughs> Everyone was saying something I didn't like, but I, it, the, the discipline of the guidelines required me to actually sit down with a piece of paper and document the evidence. And what I found during that experience was that was very helpful to guiding the investigation. You know, there was a guy who had muscles on top of his muscles and tattoos on top of his tattoos. And he was one very scary looking, looking person who I was naturally a little bit worried about. Uh, but when I analyzed what he was actually saying, he, I couldn't articulate any facts that he was actually engaging in criminal acts. And these people who sometimes didn't look nearly as scary uh, you know, seemed to be much more uh, involved in mainstream society and had a lot to lose by engaging in criminal activity. There was evidence they were doing things that were illegal. Uh, and that, you know, really trained me to, to, to understand how important that criminal predicate was, not just to protecting the innocent, but to making sure that the government is actually focused on real threats, not driven by its own biases. And these reforms were prompted by the FBI's history of going way, way overboard. And that's putting it kindly in its investigation of anti-war groups during Vietnam. And in particular, the Black Panthers. In fact, there's a, a very popular movie out now on HBO, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a blood-curdling portrayal of how the FBI and local Chicago police uh, set out to destroy the Black Panthers there, and they ended up assassinating Fred, Fred Hampton, the right. chairman and, of the Black Panthers. And, and even groups that, that, you know, there was no argument that they were engaging in violence. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, Martin Luther King, uh, Calif University of California, uh, uh, President Clark Kerr, you know, mm -hmm. people who were just saying things yeah. that J. Edgar Hoover or the yeah. FBI agents in that region didn't like. But even after that, the FBI seemed to go overboard in its um, confrontation with anti-war protesters, protesting the U.S. wars in Central America, uh, infiltrating exactly. the CISPES uh, peace group. Right, the Committee so, of Solidarity with the People of El Salvador. And and then we have the history of post-911 uh, FBI activities has uh, crossed the line against uh, Muslims. Right. Um, so uh, how many times is it going to take the FBI to reform itself? I mean, uh, it, 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 exactly. Probably, you know, and that's why, you know, I think the CISPIS case shows that the guidelines are not self-enforcing. Right. The right. guidelines were in place when this, when the CISPIS case was initiated and when it went on. But it was the guidelines ultimately that justified a Department of Justice official saying you have to end this investigation. Mm -hmm. right? So, so here we are again now, right? Uh, in 2021, and uh, the BuzzFeed investigation has uh, unearthed some very serious and disturbing evidence that the FBI may have guided this plot to kidnap Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer. What, what do you have to say about that? So what you have to understand is, is the attorney general's guidelines that govern FBI investigations 
were altered significantly after 9-11. Initially in 2003 by Attorney General John Ashcroft, opening the, the spigot for the FBI to investigate people they didn't have a criminal predicate against. They didn't have a reasonable indication of criminal activity. They could, they could go to public events uh, without announcing themselves. Uh, and uh, in 2008, Michael McCasey, Attorney General Michael McCasey expanded them even broader, creating a new category of investigations called assessments, which required no factual predicate. The FBI agents could determine for themselves who they want to investigate, and it allowed agents to make their own allegations to justify intrusive investigations. That's a recipe for trouble. Exactly. And you know, with, with the BuzzFeed article on the Michigan case, you know, one of the things you have to understand about undercover work is uh, it, it, it leaves the defense with few options. Right? They can't say this is a, a case of misidentification. I wasn't there. Here you are on videotape or, or audio tape <clears throat> engaging in the crime. They can't say I didn't do the crime because we have it documented on tape. Uh, they can't say <clears throat> I was in Topeka when that happened uh, because here they are on tape. So uh, entrapment is is pretty much the only defense and people tend to overestimate what what the the legal meaning of entrapment is and and they focus on the government inducement of the crime when the government is allowed to induce the crime so long as the defendant is predisposed there's evidence that the agent that the FBI has that the defendants were already predisposed to commit this crime so what changed after 911 in the way terrorism undercover operations run is that the FBI used <clears throat> this theory of terrorist radicalization as predisposition. So if you have bad ideas, you're already disposed to engage in terrorist crimes. And they use that theory to justify manufacturing plots, right? Uh, where they would find somebody who was not associated with a terrorist group, primarily Muslim men, and encourage them and the government would pretend to be a terrorist and encourage them to participate in some kind of plot in some cases offering them significant amounts of money or some kind of other benefit if they would participate in a plot let's just make this make it clear for everybody here so the fbi is allowed to do that under the current guidelines uh, yes, uh, the FBI is, is allowed. The FBI to, to can decide. go to Joe Smith, who contests the election results, who espouses white supremacy ideas. And the FBI can send an undercover agent to say, how would you like to bomb a building? So what they have to expect then is that the defense will, will offer an entrapment defense, in which case the government now has to prove that predisposition. Before a government agent was introduced to this person, they were already predisposed to commit this crime. And often that is they've committed that crime in the past or committed very similar crimes. But again, with terrorism, the way that the FBI altered this methodology was to argue, and this radicalization theory is completely false. It's not, it's not based on empirical research. In fact- Explain that. Explain that radicalization theory. Sure. So, so the radicalization theory is that if somebody who has particular ideas commits a crime, it's because they had the ideas and that, and adopting the ideas puts someone on a path to committing that crime. 
this inexorable draw toward committing the crime. And this was the same theory that the government used in the early 1900s when J. Edgar Hoover was, was a, 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 not the director, it was just a, an employee within the FBI. And he ran the radicals division. And that was used to, to target trade unionists and anti-war activists mm -hmm. uh, in, in the first iteration of FBI abuse. Uh, and then again, used during the COINTELPRO era to target civil rights and anti-war uh, protesters. This idea that it's not just the people who are committing crime that are the problem, it's the people who are spreading bad ideas. And so that theory has been tested empirically over and over again over the decades, and it's demonstrably wrong. It, it, that's not the case. Most people who have these ideas don't commit crime. And the few that commit crime often are not very tied to the ideas. They have a history of committing that kind of crime. And here's a group that appreciates that or that they can justify their activities. Yeah, we, we, we don't ordinarily see police or the FBI saying, well, this guy has uh, been a burglar. He's burgled six stores. So let's uh, concoct a plot for him to burgle another one and we'll catch him. Right. I mean, that's that's a traditional undercover operation, right? That you're targeting people who, you know, that's the kind of operation that I was involved in. Right. We, we had evidence of these these uh, criminal acts that had been done in the region. So we're targeting specific By these Nazis by the by Nazis and those people introduced us to other people who introduced us to other people uh, who who started coming to us because they thought we were criminals and could help them in their criminal practices so you know we were commit we were identifying people who were already committing those kinds of crimes hmm. you know in the 2006 Liberty City uh, uh, the Liberty City 7 uh, case um, the FBI seemed to go way over bounds again uh, to go to this uh, cult of uh, uh, America, uh, black African-Americans and uh, suggest uh, a connection with Al-Qaeda and kind of set it up, posed as Al-Qaeda agents and lured them into a plot to a very improbable plot of bombing the Sears Tower and in Chicago. It, uh, right, it's starting what the Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez called a full ground war. I think it was seven of them. And it took three trials to convict just one of them and, and it was shaky from start to end. Uh, I think a black eye for the FBI. Well, uh, I, I think they saw it as a victory though, in the end. And, and I think the lesson they learned from it wasn't that they were overreaching in these cases, but that they had to make them much more theatrical. So that's when you started seeing in, in cases similar to that, people being targeted who are very marginalized, don't have a penny to their name, don't have any kind of political support or, or involvement, don't have any weapons. The FBI would provide sophisticated weapons, things like stinger missiles to people who, who don't have a dime so that in the courtroom, you know, the, the, what they saw as the challenge in those cases was the only weapon they could produce was, was a ceremonial sword in the Liberty City 7 case, where now if they can have a, a Stinger missile sitting in the courtroom, that can sway a jury and a judge, even if it was a Stinger missile provided by the government to somebody who never asked for it and never could have afforded it in, in, in any situation. You know, it just boggles the mind. Why? I mean, I don't underestimate, and neither do you, underestimate the challenge that the FBI has, uh, the current challenge of uh, 
people, uh, you know, many thousands of people who are contesting the elections believe the uh, the big lie, as it's called, that Trump won the election and so on. Uh, I don't underestimate the FBI's challenge in dealing with this uh, uh, under our constitutional rules of protection of free speech and so on. But it, it seems that the FBI has been, has been given much too much leeway um, to concoct these plots um, uh, when it seems totally unnecessary to me as well. I well, mean, if these guys are going to uh, concoct a plot to uh, kidnap a governor or uh, take other violent action, it seems to me all the FBI has to do is sit and wait and watch that plot unfold and then move in for the arrest. Absolutely. And, and particularly, so, so part of the reason why the FBI adopted this methodology in targeting uh, uh, Muslim Americans as associates of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or these other groups is because we're a very fortunate country. There's very little international terrorist, terrorism in the United States. But the FBI has promoted that as their primary mission and has demanded all kinds of new authorities and all kinds of resources, they have to produce some kind of statistical results, right? They can't just say, okay, no terrorism happened in the last six months, we're good. They have to actually produce statistics to say they're using these authorities and this, these resources effectively. So that pushed them to manufacture these cases. In the case of white supremacists and far-right militants, they don't have to manufacture cases. These are groups that are regularly violent, right? They're engaging in crime on a regular basis, often you know, in the last four years in public, right? This is public violence that they're committing that isn't being policed. Today, the FBI can't tell you how many people white supremacists killed last year or the year before that or the year before that because they don't even bother to collect incidents of violent crimes that they say are their primary mission. Why is that, Mike? I mean, uh, you've spoken publicly about this before. Why is the FBI not collecting records on its own main target? Uh, well, number one, because it didn't want that to be the main target, right? White supremacist violence has been part of the American experience since European colonialists landed on, on the shores of North America. Uh, it's something that, that we've had laws to address since the 1800s, uh, you know, and, and the public is aware of it, the public understands it, the public isn't afraid of it in the way that they are afraid of this guy in a turban with, the, with dark skin and a, and a long beard who prays to, a, to a, you know, a different God and, and eats different food. And I can, I can fear that person in a way I don't fear the guy who looks like me down the street, even if objectively the person down the street is engaging in more violence than anybody abroad. So the FBI was using the fear of foreign terrorists to expand its authorities and resources. And if it was objectively measuring the violence from the different groups, the violence from white supremacists and far-right militants would far exceed any violence produced by any foreign terrorist group. So it, would, it wouldn't be able to justify how it divided its resources. The FBI has long said that only 20% of its counterterrorism resources go to domestic terrorism. And within the domestic terrorism program, 
the FBI prioritized eco-terrorism as the number one threat, even though there's not a single homicide in the United States related to, to any environmental illegal actions. So again, if they produce these numbers showing as significantly higher rates of violence from white supremacists, they can't prioritize eco-terrorism as their number one mission. So they, they use various methods to suppress the numbers of, of uh, incidents, violent incidents initiated by white supremacists and far-right militants. Do you or does anyone else have any ballpark figures on the number of violent incidents and murders carried out by these white supremacists? Uh, not really. So there are a number of private groups and academic organizations that try to collect this data, but they're, they're somewhat constrained, I believe, uh, partly because, you know, they, they have to look through court records. So if somebody isn't charged and the police don't identify them as a, a white supremacist or part of a far-right militant group, that's not, that doesn't appear anywhere in a court record or a media file. You know, it, it, um, part of the, the, the reason is that we call white supremacists different things. Sometimes it's domestic terrorism. Sometimes it's a civil right, rights violation by a hate crime, like a hate crime. Uh, significant number of federal cases against white supremacists aren't through the Joint Terrorism Task Force. They're through violent crimes task forces, treating it as gang issues, even though it's white supremacist gangs. So by doing this, not only do we dilute the number of, of uh, white supremacist cases in the domestic terrorism program, civil rights violations <clears throat> and violent crimes, <clears throat> excuse me, are not typically investigated by the FBI. Those are deferred to state and local law enforcement. So there's this huge black hole where we don't know if law enforcement is picking up these cases or not. What and, we found in, <clears throat> in uh... And, and this is an issue that cries out for congressional oversight. Uh, Jamie Raskin had a hearing uh, last year uh, in which he uh, revealed that the FBI has really fallen down on investigating white supremacists in local police forces. Uh, do you sense uh, Congress is going to have any more interest in this uh, subject? Uh, the January 6th committee that uh, Speaker Pelosi has set up seems to be just disintegrating in the face of partisan attacks. Um, so where do you see any reform coming from? So, so Congress has, has been trying to get data from the FBI. Uh, in 2017, Senator Durbin <clears throat> introduced the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act that would have asked for a very simple thing. For, for each category of terrorism, at that time, the FBI had a category for white supremacy, a category for far-right militancy, a category that they called black identity extremists, category for anarchists, for animal rights activists, for all these different things. Give us all the incidents and all the fatalities resulting from those incidents on one side of the ledger and the number of investigations, prosecutions, and convictions on the other. So we can see if the res investigative resources are being devoted to the most violent threats, or if they're being misallocated to less violent threats. The FBI instead collapsed its categories, putting white supremacists with black identity extremists. Now, 
having done investigations of white supremacists, I can tell you it's very rare for them to act with so-called black separatists or black identity extremists, right? You don't often open a case of white supremacists and find out that they're really black identity extremists. Well, right? who no was, operational reason for that. Why was that decision made and who pushed who into making that determination? Was that uh, uh, the responsibility of Director Ray? Uh, uh, so that happened in 2018. So it would have been Director Ray, who who was director at the time. But to me, it was clearly an effort to obscure what Congress was seeking. Right? Senator Durbin certainly saw it that way, and he wrote a letter to the FBI saying, "You know, I've asked you for this information, and a year later, you you reorganize these categories in a way to obscure what I'm asking for." You know, uh, and and so so it's very clear. The F so anyway, that that data request passed in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020, but the report that the FBI produced a year late doesn't actually provide the information and reveals clearly the FBI does not keep a list of domestic terrorism incidents, so they don't track domestic terrorism by incident. And if you look at the numbers that they do identify as domestic terrorism incidents caused by white supremacists, they're far lower than what private groups like the Anti-Defamation League or the Extremist Crime Database, academic uh, 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 database that, that uh, college professors put together. It, 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 that's public information that how the FBI wouldn't even identify these cases that private groups already identified and published as acts of domestic terrorism. We seem to be ending up here with the worst of uh, all worlds. Uh, if I play devil's advocate, I could say, well, it's good that the FBI is not marshalling all its great muscle uh, to go after people who have white supremacist views. Uh, right. That's good to inhibit the FBI's power. On the other hand, uh, it's, it seems to be dragging its feet on defining the problem uh, while other uh, law enforcement and intelligence authorities say white extremism is the biggest national security problem facing the United States right now in the realm of politics. Um, right. And, and, and to be clear, I, I don't know what happened in Michigan. Right. Right. What we have right now and that are the source of the BuzzFeed article are defense uh, uh, arguments. And, and that will all play out in court. And when we have all the facts that come out of the trial, then we can make a determination whether the government overstepped or not. But the FBI earned the skepticism by adopting this methodology uh, and using it in cases of, of more marginalized groups like Muslim Americans after 9-11, animal rights groups, uh, in, environmental groups. Um, and my concern is that because they have adopted that methodology, they've forgotten how to do an actual investigation of violent groups, that their methodology is now find some marginalized people who are not very smart and coax them into an elaborate plan that then mm -hmm. you can, you know, publicize as this great uh, terrorism prevention initiative, uh, when in fact it's all concocted and manufactured. And, and they've forgotten that here's a group that's committing violence, focus on the violence, focus on the violent groups, infiltrate those violent groups, and then you don't have to worry about this, uh, the entrapment defense. And, and part of my concern with how, with this isn't just the targeting of innocent people and the civil rights violations involved in that, but the fact that you're undermining trust in government. 
And, and I think that is, is a huge problem that we're seeing play out now. And unfortunately it will make, I think it will harm legitimate cases, uh, you know, and rather than, you know, infiltrating groups that are saying things and, and you know, monitoring social media, uh, the government should be focusing on the violence. And you know, keep in mind, the you know, again, the thing that's different from when I worked these cases in the 1990s is how much public violence there is. And over the last four years, we've seen uh, groups like the Proud Boys and these other militant groups engaging in violence in public. And, and people within these groups gaining reputations for violence they commit at these public events and somehow being able to travel around the country crossing state lines without any attention by the FBI. And that is the most problematic part. You know, before the assault on the Capitol, two weeks before the assault on the Capitol, far-right militants attacked the Oregon State Legislature. They breached the doors, they fought with police officers, they attacked journalists. No federal charges resulted from that. In fact, no federal charges that I'm aware of is, have resulted from far-right violence at, at protests throughout Oregon over the last four years that, again, is committed in public and did result in some state and local arrests. So it's not as if there isn't the criminal predicate that's necessary to investigate these crimes. There is. Uh, and it's just that the FBI doesn't want to investigate those crimes. And that's the issue. It's not a lack of authority. It's, it's a lack of attention, and that's what needs to be addressed. And, and the FBI's attempt to suppress the data is a clear example of their, their knowing lack of interest in, this, in, this, in uh, tackling white supremacists and far-right militant violence. And according to many reports, um, all this has just been prelude. The worst may be yet to come. There may be more attacks on... Um, attempts to attack uh, federal targets, as uh, Timothy McVeigh famously did in the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, the FBI uh, experts, counterterrorism experts we've talked to for, for months have said they fear another Timothy McVeigh being roused by the anti-government rhetoric. Someone who is not a member of any terrorist group or white supremacist right. group will take upon himself to carry out another horrendous bombing. And, and that was a concern I expressed about the lack of attention to this public violence, that that was drawing a more violent element to engage, right? You know, when I was undercover, the people in the groups I was in were very secretive. They didn't come out to public events. They didn't show themselves because they knew they were involved in serious criminal activity, where, where over the last four years, they've been able to commit that violence in public that has drawn them out and brought them together with with groups across the country so they can network. So now that there's some enforcement action being taken, they can go back underground, but they have this robust network and logistical ch supply chains set up that will make them far more dangerous in the future. But again, this is something that, that traditional law enforcement techniques focused on the violent crimes it, is, are, ample to address. And that's how they have to do it. Get back to the fundamentals of doing criminal investigations of crimes that are occurring and have occurred. And if they would address those, they would, they would remove the most violent element from, uh, from the larger network. We're not only out of the woods, not only not out of the woods yet, we seem to be deep in the woods without a compass. 
And that's really the most uh, terrifying part of all this. Right. And that's why the data collection is so important. And the FBI's resistance to providing that data is such so problematic. Well, we keep trying to get the FBI to come on our show and uh, talk about this. We haven't had any success yet. Anyway, Mike, uh, we're going to be back talking to you about this again in the future, I'm sure. I've been talking with Mike German, former FBI special agent who worked undercover against American Nazis years ago and is now at the Brennan Center for Justice as a fellow and expert on surveillance, counterterrorism, civil liberties, and everything connected to that. Thanks for coming aboard, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jeff. You can find out more about the FBI's recent shortcomings on domestic terrorism and other issues over at the Spy Talk website on Substack. Just Google Spy Talk and it will pop up. Meanwhile, have you ever put the words intelligence and security in the same sentence as medicine and health? Gene has an interview coming up explaining the connection. Stay with Spy Talk. When COVID-19 was emerging in China, there was, according to reports, a group that raised an early alarm within the U.S. government. The National Center for Medical Intelligence is part of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Dennis Kaufman retired before the COVID-19 pandemic, but he worked at NCMI for almost 20 years alongside veterinarians, physicians, and others who collect and analyze information from all over the world in an effort to detect emerging medical threats that might jeopardize the health and security of Americans, especially American troops. There were more soldiers who died of disease during the Civil War than died of wounds. Um, The uh, probably the toughest enemy uh, General Rommel fought in North Africa wasn't the Americans and the British, it was dysentery. So medicine has always been a key factor in military operations and planning. And understanding health risks is a a key factor. Is it still a key factor in this day of modern medicine with antibiotics and other miracle drugs? Very much. Um, Well, first of all, take a look at COVID. you know, we, we antibiotics uh, don't work against viruses. The field of antivirals is brand new. Uh, we're really just starting, getting started with that. And we have a lot of problems with antibiotic resistance, uh, resistance to uh, uh, any number of drugs that, you know, are taking uh, standard therapies off the shelf and creating superbugs. So, Again, that this is something you really have to stay ahead of, but it's not just diseases that you worry about. It's the capacity of a country or an organization to handle health within its population. If you have a, if a country or an organization has a solid health system, it can respond to diseases and health emergencies. Um, and do so very quickly with a minimum amount of death and disability. If you don't have that, 
then you know diseases go haywire. Uh, natural disasters uh, cause uh, serious injuries and death, and people can't get to the uh, to the injured and the ill. You know everything collapses. And so, so that becomes sort of, that becomes a very real security threat then, because you could have yes. mm-hmm. economic and societal collapse, or you could have mass migrations. I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yes. So these are serious threats, and to assess not just how dangerous the threat is, to assess how, how dangerous the threat is, you have to understand the disease, and you have to understand the capacity to respond to it. The focus is on intelligence. Um, how we gather information and how we analyze it. The medical nature of the information is very is critically important, but also critically important and should not be lost in all of that is the discipline that goes into collecting and analyzing. What sources do you use to figure that out? Well, NCMI was an all-source agency, so we had uh, we had the you know full panoply of sources that anybody else in the intelligence community uses. Those are at our disposal. Now, obviously, so there's human a, intelligence, signals intelligence, satellite mm-hmm. imagery, all those things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you also look at open sources? Uh, and I'm wondering, particularly looking at what happened at January 6th here in Washington, social media has proved an incredible tool for investigation. Mm-hmm. Are those things that NCMI examines? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, all of our analysts regularly uh, and routinely went through open source reporting. We had, um, actually, we had a, uh, a, a aggregator that was set up to crawl open source reporting and obviously there was a lot of repetition and a lot of things that you know weren't uh, needed or weren't particularly important but it was uh, very useful in capturing early warning of something that people were talking about so you know for instance uh, early uh early indications that there was a fever of unknown origin in Northwest Africa gave us a tip that something was going on and it was different than what we expected. And it turned out to be Ebola. What do you do when you find something that seems dangerous? (laughs) If it's, well, you assess the impact, uh, you assess the actual impact. Um, Ebola was a very dangerous disease uh, for people who were exposed to it. Um, And it presented a threat to the area and to potentially to the stability in the area and and much larger than just the three countries that were principally involved. And who in the the government would you alert? Would you alert uh, HHS or CDC or the Joint Chiefs or or the White House? (laughs) Yes. All of the above, yes. if it's dangerous enough. <laughs> right. Um, you know, or if it's something that is going to involve or affect U.S. Uh, U.S. defense assets. So might it threaten U.S. defense assets? Or might it lead to U.S. defense assets being called in to help to help out, which was exactly the case in Ebola? Um a lot of times you also have to let people know that some the the extent of a threat 
So if something is not a great threat, you want to get that word out also. Because if you recall, there was a tremendous amount of panic over Ebola, and a lot of it was needless. Um, now, on the other hand, there was a, a lot of people were playing down COVID, which really was a dangerous uh, disease. What's your theory? Do you believe, as someone who was in this field for decades, that COVID came out of a lab or COVID was transmitted from an animal to humans? What I'm going to say is based not on in-depth understanding of virology or uh, anything of that nature. Um, my personal belief is that it's more likely that it was a naturally occurring exposure than that it was a lab mistake. Now, there is a range of exposure in there that you uh, has been described in some some articles as innocent, uh, an innocent lab leak, um, where somebody might have been exposed to an infected animal in a lab situation or to an infected person in a lab situation and being asymptomatic carried it out of the lab. That's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. And it's entirely possible that it was a lab leak. But to have a lab leak, a lot of stuff has to go wrong. There are a lot of defense in depth measures taken in labs to prevent just that sort of thing from happening. But do you know so if of those measures to... were being taken in Wuhan? There's been reporting that actually security at that lab was very problematic. Uh, there have been reports to that, but even a problematic lab uh, takes takes measures. I mean, it's not in anybody's interest to be sloppy with a very dangerous disease. Um, so even, even a problematic lab takes a lot of measures. And again, I'm not suggesting that this was a, this was or wasn't a lab with problems. Just that um, my experience with disease labs that handle this kind of agent, they know what they're dealing with. So they're, they are careful. And again, things, you have to do things wrong, a number of things wrong for one of these things to get out. Um, on the other hand, even, even if you you're own, engineering it, even if you're engineering it to be more transmissible and to be more virulent. Um, you, if you're doing that, you really are taking precautions. You hope. Um, now, are, are, are you, if you're referring to gain of function I am. Uh, studies that uh, are a popular topic between Senator Paul and Dr. Fauci, um, yeah, gain. If you're doing gain of function research and you're um, you're taking risks that something might be more uh, more transmissible you're really taking precautions then. If they were doing that, they knew what they were doing. If they were doing that, they knew the risks involved. And um, they were really doing a lot to, uh, to take precautions. Bear in mind that one of the reasons that, one of the reasons that uh, the U.S. and other countries invest in um, helping these labs uh, with their, with their programs is, um, 
it, it gives them oversight and it gives them uh, a, gives them awareness of the practices in the lab. It gives them oversight and it gives them an ability to train the labs. So these, these were well-trained people. Given how uncooperative China has been and how much misinformation um, or questionable information or unverified information is floating around, whether you think we're ever going to get to the bottom of where this came from. I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom. I think we'll have some pretty good ideas uh, before it's all over. I think you can take almost all of this idea that it was some kind of a nefarious action off the table. Um, there would be, uh, it would probably rank in terms of, you know, monumental stupidity as high as you could get to release an organism that you had no measures against, countermeasures against that was highly infectious and, uh, and highly, highly dangerous, highly lethal. Um, you know, that would just be, you know, beyond folly. COVID has been devastating to much of the world, but as someone who studied this over the years, is this the big one or is something worse likely to come down the road? <laughs> um, a few years ago, I was very critical of the idea that, um, you know, I, I recognize that we could face a serious pandemic, um, but I was somewhat dismissive of the idea that it would be uh, what we've just seen. Because I was convinced, I was convinced that the United States would lead the world in its response. It never occurred to me that the United States in particular and much of the rest of the developed world would respond so incompetently um, that simple public health measures would be politicized and that people would place, um, place partisanship over uh, public health and the lives of fellow citizens. So if you ask me, is this the big one? I would say yes until the next one comes along, unless we get our act together and figure out how to stop the disinformation, how to silence people who um, are spreading lies. And, and I use that term very directly. What is coming out of some prominent people's mouths about uh, about COVID and about the measures to mitigate it, uh, some of what's coming out of them are lies. You want to name names? Um, I think it's pretty obvious who some of those folks are, and let's you know we can go all the way to the top and come back down. Um, the vaccines work; they work extraordinarily well. Um, masks would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives in this country alone. Dennis Kaufman is now retired from the National Center for Medical Intelligence, so he could not confirm reports that NCMI raised the alarm on COVID within the U.S. government before the WHO designated it a pandemic. 
and he didn't have details of its involvement into the origins of COVID, though he's sure it is taking part. NCMI, he says, is pretty unique. Unlike other health-related offices and departments in the U.S. government, it takes the long view and focuses exclusively on threats developing overseas. And although other countries have medical intelligence units of their own, they are usually part of a health bureaucracy. NCMI is an intelligence organization within the Department of Defense. Jeff? That was a fascinating interview, Gene. I'm thinking now that the United States, perhaps the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, or any of the other 17 intelligence agencies we have may have to develop a deep penetration agent in China to solve the mystery of the origin of the Wuhan COVID-19 virus. We'll certainly be covering it here at Spy Talk as as, uh, new information warrants. So uh, come back and uh, stay in touch with us here. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us. We hope you do again next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.